You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as the kids are making their way, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text for this morning, which is Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Those words that we just sang are really important, and they seem to be uh, kind of daunting words, especially in this moment in which preaching comes right after them. We just sang, O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. And that certainly is our prayer, and we expect and hope that God will do that every time we open God's word together. And this morning is certainly no exception as we turn our attention to the next few verses in our preaching series called Connoisseurs of Happiness through this epistle of joy by the Apostle Paul to the believers at Philippi, the church that was there. Now, last Sunday, uh, you might remember, uh, if you're paying close attention or taking notes, that I said something that, that may sound a little bit controversial. Or as I said last Sunday, it sounds a little bit like something you hear the world saying, but it is quite true. In fact, I believe that it is most true when understood in the context of scripture. That statement was this, you and I must think and believe our way to happiness. As we've been considering throughout this series in the book of Philippians, our main theme, our main focus has been to grow in our appreciation for happiness in Christ, to try to get our hearts and minds around what exactly does it mean to be satisfied with Christ? What is it that God does in our hearts when he brings us to faith in Christ and and by his grace, he leads us to repentance and trust in Christ and what he has done. And as his Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of us, what is it that he is doing? He is doing what no one else and nothing else in all of created reality can ultimately do. He is filling our natural desire to be happy. We've been reminded over these months throughout this year that there is a kind of desire for happiness hardwired into every person. It is the central reason for everything that you and I do. We do what we do because we believe it will give us some measure of happiness. And what I think is beautiful, if we come to embrace it, is the truth that God in his mercy and kindness has not decided that in the fall that desire would would be evil in and of itself, but rather that he would fill it, that he would be the one who makes us happy. And so we are on a quest. Make no mistake, we are on a quest to be happy and to be happier every single day, and yet we need to know how. And that's why I said last Sunday that we must think and believe our way to happiness. In fact, I think it might be helpful if we just back up and grab the context of this passage and see what words we have been reading and studying together before we come to these two verses that we'll focus on this morning. Let's just back up to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and I'll read from there. Focus in on those words. 
words. And like always, when we read the word of God, let's read with expectation and let's read with focus, asking in our hearts that God would minister to us, that he would, in a way that only he can, serve us. God, please serve us your word. We want to know you when we read these words. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Yet again, here in this context, Paul is framing out for us a quest for rejoicing, for gladness, for satisfaction in Christ, and he has been telling us the way there. Well, this morning, what I want to do is prove to you that it is the path of thinking and believing that leads us into Christian happiness, and I'm going to do it with just a two-point sermon. You delighted for two points instead of three, two points this morning out of verses eight and nine. Here is the first truth that we see Paul unpack for us at this point in his letter, that if we want to be happy in Christ and we want to continue on this incredible, bright, big gospel road of satisfaction in him, we must first do this, dwell on what is good. You'll notice that this word will really take a a prominent place in, in this text and in Paul's logic because he is bringing to our minds, that's an ironic thing to say, I think, that dwelling on the truth is the key or a key to being satisfied in Christ. It is a key to how we live our lives, what we think about, and what we believe is essential to who we are as Christians. Now, coming out of those words that we just read from Paul, notice in verse 8 what he does next. He's sort of wrapping up this portion of his thought, and he's doing it with the word finally, and then two important words, well, three in English, brothers and sisters, What Paul is doing here is gathering the family of God and giving yet another reminder of where this rejoicing happens. How does it happen? Among whom does it happen? He says, finally, brothers and sisters. Now, we know from everything that Paul has said to us in the word of God that when Paul thinks of brothers and sisters, he's not thinking merely of physical brothers and sisters, biological brothers and sisters. He is thinking about spiritual brothers and sisters, but a family of a particular kind. The Apostle Paul, when he thinks about Christians, does not speak in generalities. He doesn't have a broad net that casts any kind of person who may be even remotely connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ to refer to them as brothers and sisters, but rather he is talking about a particular experience, a particular relationship to Christ. And that is a relationship in which we come to Christ as our true and great big brother who has come down from our Father to redeem us from from all of our sinful ways and to convert us and bring us into his kingdom forevermore. 
And that happens by faith in Christ. That happens no other way. There are no works that you can do. You, you cannot become a Christian. I, I did not become a Christian by doing good works. I became a Christian as you did by grace alone. Uh, we cannot become Christians simply because we do certain things or we decide certain things, but rather that God, by the gift of faith, changes our hearts so that we come to see Christ and we come to see his word and we come to see his spirit and everything about him in this uniquely biblical way. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we go to church, though we do. It doesn't mean that we pray, though we do. It does not mean that we know the Bible, though we do, because there are scores of people who are not Christians who know the Bible. There are many people who are not Christians who know the Bible far better than I do, far better than you do. Because that's not what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, is it? It doesn't have to do with just knowing something. It does have to do with just, with, with just doing something. It has to do with believing something. It has to do with dwelling upon something. Now let's move down and notice what is Paul's exhortation in this last bit of his logic and thought when he says, finally, brothers and sisters, here's the key verb, strong verb being used, dwell Look down at the end of verse 8. Dwell on these things. Anytime we see some kind of strong verb taking this prominent place in the text of Scripture, we should do something with it. Write it down. If you like to circle and underline or highlight in your Bible, circle or underline the word dwell. It's key to everything that Paul has been saying. It is the Greek word logizomai. It is the word for focused thinking, the way that we have come to understand it, and perhaps a helpful picture for even us is to think about what does it mean to have a dwelling? What is your dwelling? Now, all of our dwellings may be different. Some of us have a dwelling that is an apartment, maybe just uh, one or two rooms. Uh, others of us have a home that is our dwelling. It could be many rooms. Some of our dwellings are uh, ordinary and plain. Some of them are fancy and well-decorated. It doesn't really matter what it looks like. There is a dwelling. It's the place that you live. It's the place that you return to over and over again. It is your the headquarters of your life. It's the place where you lie down. It's the place where you rise. Again, no matter whether your dwelling is straw or precious stones, it's your dwelling. Paul is using the same kind of language and imagery to remind us and teach us what is a central truth or action or habit of the Christian life. It is that we dwell that we have a kind of spiritual dwelling. It's a place of focused thought and a place of, of musing and meditating upon certain things. It is the place that we are to live. So capture that first. If you're taking notes, capture that what Paul is framing out for us is a place spiritually to live. 
He intends that this place spiritually will be the place that we lie down and we rise up again, the headquarters of our life, the main central hub of all that we are is this dwelling, and now let's look at what that dwelling is like. Because Paul, as giving this, this spiritual kind of picture, is going to use a number of spiritual words. This might be one of the most popular and memorized Sunday school verses. I remember being uh, younger as a Christian, and even um, a Christian music artist that was in our church had a song. I'm not going to sing it, but he had a song in which he sang through these, and uh, to this day, that is the way that I remember them. So let's take a moment, and you'll see it on the screen here. I've listed out the words, and I've done something with it to help us just dig in momentarily into what these words mean. Because one of my fears in all of my Bible reading, and maybe even yours too, is that sometimes things become just too familiar. Or some ordinary words, because the Bible's full of ordinary words, it's written for ordinary people like us, sometimes it becomes real familiar, and we just don't get out of it the richness or truth that is there. We want to be miners who are digging into the Word of God, and maybe this is a way that will help us. Now, you'll see that for each of them, I've listed what the word is that we have in English in this text that we're reading from, and then the Greek word. We're not as concerned about that, but then provided a kind of definition to help build out from that word what it means. Words are made of words, and by having some additional words, it may bring home for us what these truths or these, these attributes or these, these focal points are for us in our dwelling. What is the furniture of our spiritual dwelling? And then finally, you'll notice that there is then the antonym or opposite of that word, because on the dark side, we might be able to see a little bit of where we've been going wrong. Maybe there is something that we have been dwelling on. Maybe there's a, a, a picture on the wall of our spiritual dwelling, or, or maybe it's the, the color of the carpet, and it just doesn't match. It is ugly and depressing and darkening to our dwelling. This may help us as well. So we're going to take just a moment and work through each of these words and notice on the screen what they mean. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. This word that he uses pertains to what is consistent with reality, what is genuine, what is truthful. And certainly it really speaks to, in my heart, my tendency to be deceived in the midst of reality. I don't always see reality as it actually is. Sometimes we have all kinds of suspicions about other people. We might have suspicions about what they're doing or what they think, what they think about us. And then that kind of dwelling, when that furniture is placed central to our spiritual home, it becomes very uncomfortable. It's crowding the room. We're no longer able to live uh, and rest but it's dominating our thoughts. Notice that the antonym for the word that he uses here is obviously something that's false or something that's deceptive. You see, what I think Paul is doing in this list, as he does often in lists, is not just being cute. You know, any, anybody can be cute and just list out a bunch of words that kind of go together and it sounds poetic. That's not what Paul's doing. Well, for one, that's not the way that Paul operates. And number two, remember that these are not Paul's words. These are the Holy Spirit's words. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do cute. 
He's giving these words for a particular reason. They're packed with meaning. We're trying to get this out. So he says first, whatever is true, dwell on this. Take disciplined resting and rest your heart and mind on what is true, genuine, truthful, what is reality. Then second, he says, whatever is honorable. This is the word semnos. It means whatever is worthy of respect, what's dignified or venerable. And it's the opposite of what is shameful or disgraceful. We are to focus our minds on this. He goes next and says, whatever is just, whatever is righteous or upright, what is in accord with divine and moral law, what is the right way of living, focus your mind on this, rather than focusing on what may be unjust or wicked. Even there, I think it's important for us to point out that none of us are beyond these things, the antonyms. I have remaining sin in my heart, and so do you. And you are capable of doing wicked things. So am I. So we don't want to underestimate the meaning of the antonym to say, oh, wow, that means um, focus on things that are righteous and not wicked. Well, I don't do anything wicked. I don't focus on anything wicked. Of course you do. So do I. That again, they're all going to tie together. In the end, that's what Paul is doing. That's not true to say that I don't ever do anything wicked that I don't ever think anything that's wicked. We're back to number one again. But notice as we continue forward, he says, whatever is just, whatever is pure, clean, morally pure, free from defilement. The opposite, of course, is to defile something that is, that is pollution, spiritual pollution. So as we think about this, we, we have a little bit better framework to think about what could be coming through the filter of my theology or of my, my spiritual mindset and my beliefs that is polluting my Christian life. It's polluting what I think about. It is, it is interfering with my ability to stay single-minded in my pursuit of joy and happiness in Christ, for Christ, to his glory. And then you notice next, whatever is lovely, pleasing, amiable, attractive, not what is unkind. He then says, whatever is commendable or praiseworthy, deserving of approval and admiration, rather than something that is criticizable or blameworthy. This is an easy one for us because all of us tend to have, all, all of us tend to have a critical spirit about us. That's just part of what it means to be a sinner. But Paul is helping us here to be careful and to think carefully. Am I giving, am I meditating upon critique? Is that what I'm really focused on? What should I be criticizing? What are other people doing around me? How is life going? Rather focus on things that are blameless and admirable. And then finally, morally excellent or praiseworthy. Virtues, excellencies, goodnesses, moral uprightness rather than wickedness and vice. You see that eventually we start to kind of use some of the same words again, and it's bringing into our view a kind of filter, a kind of, of test that we could use in thinking about our thoughts, thinking about our beliefs. It is true that we must think and believe our way to happiness. 
in Christ, for Christ, because of him, Christian happiness. But we need this kind of focus. I think that's what Paul's trying to get us to do. He's trying to get us to focus and to be more discerning about what is coming in and going out of our hearts and our minds, of what we, what we think, typically what we might imagine happens in our brains and what we believe, what happens in our hearts. Of course, they're all one in Scripture to think carefully about this, to set our minds, to set our dwelling on what is true, what is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and praiseworthy. Ultimately, of course, what Paul is doing is he's using this as a way to calibrate our minds to dwell on Christ, who is our hope, who is our living Savior. This happens a lot in Paul's writing. I'll show you one other place, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He's saying a very similar thing in a different way, and it helps us to catch what is the flavor of his pursuit. Listen to this, starting in verse 1 of Colossians 3. So, if you have been raised with Christ, that's a big if, right? Not everyone has been raised with Christ. Not everyone is in Christ. Not everyone will be. But if, if you are a brother or sister who has been raised with Christ, seek the things above. That's the same kind of word as dwell. Seek, dwell, rest, pursue. Seek the things above where Christ is. Now, this helps to to even give a little more clarity to the list that we have in Philippians chapter 4 because he's not talking about any old truth, any old honorable thing, anything that's commendable. He's not speaking about just anything. He's speaking about something particular, that these things are wrapped up in the person and work of Christ who is, as he says in Colossians, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says again, remember, how do you know someone's serious? They raise their voice, they repeat what they're saying. Verse two, set your minds. He says it again. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you, if you're in Christ, have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And your great hope in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These truths are meant to brighten and enliven our hearts. He is drawing our minds up, not simply to something that's clean and out of trouble and obedient. He is drawing our minds up to the place of happiness easy. This world and this life as fallen people in a cursed world is happiness hard as Christians. There's a big struggle, but he's drawing our minds up to another place, a higher plane And it's the place of happiness easy in Christ. To set our minds and to dwell there. This is again a reminder of that truth we heard last Sunday that you most certainly can be in two places at one time. If you and I are going to be happy in Christ, we must be in two places at one time. Simultaneously here on earth and yet actually dwelling 
on things above, in the kingdom that is to come, to have our minds dwelling there while our lives are dwelling here, central to the Christian life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first way that we can apply this to our lives, and it's, it's a simple kind of thing, though it takes working out like all of this does, just as we've worked out these words, is that we would learn to live in these things. That's the beauty of God's word. It has given us as creatures who are finite a clear focal point, something to live for, something to live in, and Paul wants us to live in these things. Now, here's what I would suggest that we could do as an exercise together in community group life or in your family or just in your personal life in your devotional time is, again, to do a little bit of what we've done today already, and that's to focus in on the language of the text and see if you can't begin building out your vocabulary of dwelling on Christ, that you would fill your mind and your heart or your life with verbs and nouns that give you a better command of what goes in and out of your heart and mind. Start taking these words and begin writing as many synonyms as you can. You engage with those words, both the verbs of dwelling or seeking or rejoicing or resting, those kinds of things, and the nouns, what you're dwelling on, what you're seeking, where you're resting. What are the big spiritual truths that are central to your life? Make a list of them and hold on to them as tightly as you can. Uh, minister them to yourself. Counsel yourself and others with these words. I really believe when I look at my Christian life, and when I look at the Christian lives of others that, you know, walk with me or I get to walk with them, this is a common need. Our vocabulary is very small. Similar to what we've been discussing recently in that our spiritual imagination of the pictures of the gospel that can help illuminate our belief and uplift our hearts is very small. Because if I were to ask you to unpack these, if you were to ask me, we would both have a hard time. We would be fumbling for words, and we want to have more words on hand. So this is a good practical exercise for us, and I hope that you'll take it on and give some effort and attention to it. So the first way this, in this sort of model for life is to dwell on what is good. But notice this second. It's another word that starts with D. So these are easy to remember. Dwell and do. Paul says this next in verse 9. Do what you've learned. Now, when I say the word do, you probably, like, like I do, you probably think about actions or outward obedience that you can do. Do what you've learned. It, it tracks kind of right naturally back to, okay, well, there must be this list of things that I'm supposed to do, and if I just keep these commands, follow these rules, that, that's what Paul means. Okay, dwell on what is true, follow the rules. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit with what Paul says. That doesn't fit with Paul's worldview. So what does he mean when he says, last to do. Look at verse 9. We'll read this verse uh, together. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. 
So here's what he could mean, okay? He could mean do in the sense of the list of uh, obediences, keep, the, keep these commandments, um, uh, uh, read your Bible, go to church, give your money, uh, feed the poor, these doing things. That's what he could mean. And then he would be saying, if you do these things, God will be with you. Well, we have some struggle believing that because that doesn't match what we understand the gospel to be. The gospel is not a covenant of works, right? It doesn't come to us and say, if you really, if you really want to know God, do these things. It rather says, if you really want to know God, believe the truth of what Jesus has done for you. That's the central message of, the Christian, of Christianity, of the Christian life. So what does he mean? Well, notice, here's another option. Perhaps he means a spiritual kind of doing. Could that be what he means? Look at verse 9. He says, after saying, dwell on what is good, he says, do what you have learned. He again is going back to a kind of heart-mind focus of doing the things that you have learned from him. What has he taught you? So that raises a great question for us. What did Paul go around teaching people to do? Did he go around teaching people to work for their salvation or work for their happiness? When he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, does that mean that you should work and do works? Or rather, is it learning something else? What did he teach people around him? He taught them how to believe. He taught them how to think, how to rest. Of course, that translates naturally into all kinds of things that we do. It's because of those beliefs and those thoughts that we read the Bible, that we do go to church, that we do feed the poor, or we do pray and do these other outward things. But what is Paul really getting at as someone who wants you to know the peace of God? He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me. You see, this kind of language, these verbs are so helpful because they show us what is in the heart of Paul when he thinks about us. What does he want you to do? He wants you to do what he does. Notice that because that's, a, that's an incredible thing to see. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me. And then he says, and seen in me. Now, what I think is amazing about that is the Apostle Paul sets himself up as an example. Now, would you feel comfortable saying that? Would you say to other people, here's what you should do. If you want to know the peace of God, if you want to be happy in Christ, do what I do. Do you feel comfortable saying that? You probably, like I do, feel a little uncomfortable saying that. Like, am I that great of an example? I'm not that great of an example. Do I do all of the things that I should do? Uh, should you do as, as, as I do? Uh, should you do what I say? Maybe. Because the Apostle Paul's no different than us. Is he being arrogant? Is he being 
proud? Is he a different class of Christian? Is he the, the real ultimate example of, of you should just live your life and mimic what he does in his life and God will be happy with you? That, that doesn't make sense either. But rather what I think is going on here is Paul is getting us back to gospel focus in another way. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me. What had they received and heard from him? The good news of Jesus Christ, that we rest and hope in what someone else has done, not in what we do. What had they learned from him? If anything, the people around Paul were learning how to be Christians who did everything in their lives with a view of the gospel in mind. That they would live every moment if they could out of the good news of Jesus Christ. That their lives became ultimately proclamation-oriented, both to other people and to themselves. And that's how he becomes this kind of mentor. The word mentor actually has an interesting etymology. It comes from ancient Greek mythology. In Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, mentor was a friend of Odysseus, and he was entrusted with caring for Odysseus' son. And then that word has kind of, has kind of uh, developed over time into the word that we use as someone who has experienced, someone who has wisdom, and someone that we can follow. Paul sets himself up here as a mentor, and he says... Be my mentee, and you can do this by following what, I, what you have learned from me and received from me and heard in me and what you have seen in me. So he wants us to emulate him. But again, what does he want you to emulate? He wants you to emulate the way that he lives for the gospel. Let me show you another passage. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can turn there. It's one that you should know well if you've been around here some. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 because we get this other picture. This actually, if you're new to our church, this is like the life verse of our church. It's the reason our church is named what it is, Paramount Church. And notice what he says because he uses a number of the same words that he uses in describing the way he wants other Christians to live or be. And he's saying, live the way I have shown you to live. And this passage and others can help us know, well, what does that mean? Notice what he says, the way he describes these people that he has ministered to and how he ministered to them. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters. Oop, there's that language again. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved... If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, paramount importance, what I also received. And it's this message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. A message about what someone else has done. That was his message. His message was not about what people should do, but about what Jesus had done. 
I passed on to you as of most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters. There it is again. At one time, most of them still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me. What does Paul want you to do? This is the central question of verse 9. What does Paul want you to do? He wants you to do what you received from him. And that is to meditate and live and hope in the gospel. That the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for you would be the reason that you do everything you do. It's the reason that you interact with other people, let's say unbelievers, the way that you do. Graciousness, which he said last Sunday. It is the reason that you interact with Christians the way that you do. With charity and with forgiveness and with patience and with gospel encouragement and counsel, right? That you would manage your finances because of the gospel that you would manage your home or your job and be good stewards because of the gospel. This is what he says we are to do. And when we do this, it makes perfect sense. It is not a transaction. It is the nature of what it means to be a Christian. That as a Christian, when you live in what you have received from Christ, which is grace and mercy and good news, the God of peace will be with you. He is with you. He is at work in you. He is comforting you. This is the key. It's another model for life. Do, dwell, and do. Dwell on what you have learned and received and heard and do what you have seen in me. It's a beautiful picture of the Christian life, which I think gives us an opportunity to walk with Christ the way we are intended, even the way Jesus said, because he told us that those who are weary and heavy laden should come to him and that he would give them a list of things to do so that he would be with them. No, no, right? You should say no, no. But that he would give them rest and that his yoke was easy and his burden is light. Now, okay, this is where it gets even more personal for all of us. Do you feel lightly burdened in your Christian life? Or do you feel like your life is full of burden? Do you feel like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress that there is a kind of burden or weight on your back every day? And every day is kind of trudging along all of us feel like that. You, you feel that in some way. But what we're being given a vision of is a way of walking with Christ that lightens the burden by no longer living in relationship to God on the basis of things you must do for him to be with you and give you peace, but on the, on the basis of things that we believe and that we know are true and that we meditate on and live out of, which give us peace, knowing that the God of peace is with us. That's a very different thing. 
That's a very different thing. And, and this is what we're doing, right? This is the whole scheme of our church. It's the whole scheme of Christianity. We are trying to move in the gospel direction a little more every day. We are trying to move in the direction of happiness in Christ a little more every day, a little lighter burdened every day because we are seeing that Christ has more and more control than we knew he did. And he loves us and he's happy with us because of what he's done for us and he's delighting to move us forward and walk with us. That's, the, that's Christianity. That's the great hope. And that's the reason why we welcome anybody, anybody that God draws to himself, come. Come, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. He has plenty. Take advantage of him. Come, take advantage of his grace. Take it. Apply it. Meditate on it. Feed on it. Dwell on it. Do it. Order your life according to his will. And his will is revealed to us in the gospel. It's, it is a beautiful reality, and it's simply a reminder over and over again that Paul is giving to us. So in the second truth this morning, uh, application is that we would continue. That is what we are doing. But we want to continue cheerfully. As you'll see on the screen, might be an interesting wording, but, but catch the importance. Continue cheerfully in our communal effort to walk in the faith, to do this together as brothers and sisters, but to do it in this way that is a walk of our faith. It's not a walk of our performance. And to minister one another with these incredible truths that he has laid out for us of what we should focus our hearts and minds on, just as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, this beautiful gospel message. And of course, we again welcome and encourage any person who is here or on our live stream or hearing this somewhere else, that you would come to faith in Christ now. That if you feel that God is working in your heart and he's drawing you to himself, don't wait. Repent of your sin. Place your trust in him. Take upon his light burden and yoke by belonging to him and resting in his good news and becoming a Christian today. We want to walk with you. We want you to walk with us. We want to do this together and keep this continual walk of faith as God continues to minister and serve us this good news that we are delighted to receive. Let me invite you to stand as you're able as I pray, and then we are going to sing about these truths yet again. Our Father, we give you such thanks and praise because you, you are the God of of all comfort. You are the God of peace, and we know that you are with us. We give you thanks that your word clearly lays out for us a model for life, and that model is that we would be dwelling upon your truth, and that we would be feeding our souls, our hearts, our minds, all the same, that we would be feeding ourselves and one another with this good news, these reminders of your promises and your faithfulness and your, your rejoicing to save us. And we pray that as a result of that, our lives would be ordered according to your will, that we would have your peace, that we would have courage and, and trust and dependence upon you so that we could live lives that are honorable to you and that are useful to you and by which others will come to know the ultimate happiness and joy of belonging to you. We pray that as we sing now that our hearts would be full of joy, that you would, even though I know that many of our hearts are, are under a cloud of uh, worry as we've thought about last Sunday or some other concern that uh, 
that you would lift it and that we would focus upon you and reorient our minds around your truth and your goodness. And we pray that you'd help us with this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.